we have a small chalkboard up at our house that's above the kitchen sink and it has little pithy sayings or quotes on it you know and the girls or Kathy whoever feels like it will come in erase the one that's in place and write up another one kind of like phone messages you know put, put a new one better one on so they get changed from time to time there's one that's been up for at least a few weeks now I think and it's actually a quote from Mark 9 it's where a father kind of on the edge of his world says to Jesus I do believe help my unbelief I believe help my unbelief and I want to use that story briefly from Mark 9 to frame or to put in context the passage we'll actually spend time in this morning which is John 4 in Mark 9:17 through 27, Jesus and three of the disciples have been up on a mountain, and Jesus was transfigured, and they come down from the mountain, and when they come down, there's a crowd, and there's a father, and there's his son. And the father comes to Jesus and says, you know, I brought my son, he's demonized, brought my son to your disciples for help, and they couldn't help. They couldn't take care of his problem. And Jesus says, well, bring your son to me, so he does. And the son, as he's brought to Jesus, he's thrown down on the ground. He rolls around. He's foaming at the mouth. And the father, in desperation, in Mark 9.22 says, If you can do anything, take pity on us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Of course, Jesus does take care of the boy, casts out the demon. This line, I do believe, help my unbelief, it's one that I can relate to probably more times than I care to admit or think about. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. I'm trusting you, Lord, sort of, but I realize at the same time that I'm not trusting you in all the ways or to the degree that I should. I believe, help my unbelief. We might say, I have faith, help me in my lack of faith. Or, Lord, I trust you, but I recognize I don't trust you enough. But in this case, and it is interesting, we are never what we should be, of course, and won't be on this earth. But, you know, if you take what you know and you go with it, the Browns were coming in this morning, and I forget the little one's name. She knows where she's going. She's going to the nursery. So she went down the hall as far as she knew and then waited for dad. She went as far as she knew to go. And for us, sometimes our faith, many times our faith, our trust, is not what it should be. But just like this story, go as far as you know to go. And, and sometimes that's saying to the Lord, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In John 4, we have a very similar story to Mark 9. There's a father who's coming to Jesus to get help for his son. In this case, not demon-possessed, but sick and dying. And this is where we'll spend the balance of our time in John 4, starting at verse 46. He, that is Jesus and his disciples, came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official. The Greek for royal official is basilikos. It would actually mean the king's man. There was no king in Israel at this time, of course, but Herod, uh, generously to himself, might use the term king. So this guy was a king's man, so that is, he was important. He had a son who was sick at Capernaum. Now, just to put this in context, geographically, remember in John 4, we left Judah in the south. 
We didn't take the trail up along the uh, River Jordan, but we went through the hills. That meant we cut through Samaria, and that's where most of John 4 has taken place, the woman at the well, Samaria. Well, they've continued on. They've gone through Nazareth. If you guys were looking at a map this way, if the Sea of Galilee's here, the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea, we've left the area of the Dead Sea. We've gone up here, Nazareth. We've gone north to Cana. And then across about 20 miles straight east almost on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, that would be Capernaum. And, of course, Capernaum becomes Jesus' home city for the duration, most of the duration of his ministry. But So here's Cana where he'd done the miracle. Here's Capernaum. And the dad lives in Capernaum but has heard about Jesus. And he's got a son that needs help. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And obviously the dad has taken a day to to go back home for whatever reason. So this was the previous day. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, that he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, imagine yourself standing at this interaction. Here's this poor guy. He's, he's well-to-do, no doubt, but he's poor in that his son needs help. His son's dying, it says. And he comes to Jesus. What do you think of Jesus' reply? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Where does that come from? Why does he answer him this way? There's at least a couple of options Um, It could just be that Jesus is rude, right? And he's just uncaring. He's rude and he's gruff. I don't think that's it, obviously. Um, It could be that this really is a very accurate statement, as we'll see, as we've seen in the end of the story. The man does see the sign, the healing, and he does believe. So this could be Jesus telling it like it is. And we're going to talk much more fully about believing here and, and two phrases used here. But it could be that Jesus is just saying, you know what, you you won't really believe until you've seen a miracle. Could be that too. The the option that I lean to is to suggest that Jesus might have been just testing the man, testing the man in his faith. You remember in John 2 at the wedding, and we've talked about it's a passage that's a little troublesome on understanding, but when Mary comes to Jesus at the wedding, the first sign miracle and says, they're out of wine, son, would you take care of it? And his response to her could be seen as rude or brusque when he says, woman, what is that to me? Or what is that to you and me? And we talked about this in the conclusion, my opinion, for what it's worth, was that Jesus was simply saying he was putting a hurdle or a roadblock, if you will, in front of his mother. He had not done a public miracle yet. And he's been raised as her son. And being her son, faith in her son isn't enough It's faith in God the Son that Jesus is after. And to his reply, woman, what's that to me? Her reply is, fellas, do whatever he says to do. In essence, she's saying, I know who you are, son. 
you're more than my son, and I know you have the power to take care of these folks' needs, which, of course, he does. And then we see in John 3, you remember Jesus goes to Nicodemus, this very important socially positioned individual, and he shows no care or concern for his social status. He's after faith. And then John 4, the woman at the well, same thing. He throws these roadblocks or these hurdles, these tests, as it were, to ask these people, where are you really at? What do you really think? Who do you really believe or trust in? And I suspect that's what's happening here, that this brusque response is a test, as it were, to say to Dad, Dad, what do you really believe? What do you really count on? Who do you really trust? Now, I love the guy's response. He doesn't say a word. Doesn't say, he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, you've got me all wrong. He's not put off. Jesus didn't say, there, there, I'll make it better, you know, and he feels good. He's not put off. He goes right back and he says, basically, I know you're the one who can take care of my need. Please come and heal my son. You know, it's interesting. If we have something that we really desire for ourselves or for others, we're willing to put up with a lot sometimes. And this father was not going to be dissuaded. He knew that Jesus had power to heal his son. He could have been present at the wedding in Cana. Or this, this close, this close proximity, if he wasn't there, he may have had friends or relatives who were at the wedding and said, this guy made water out of wine. We all saw it. We all drank it. He knew Jesus had the power and he wasn't going to be dissuaded. In fact, if you think of some other stories in the Gospels, this is not an uncommon theme. Do you remember the Syrophoenician woman who's yelling out to Jesus to heal her daughter and Jesus just ignores her? We talked about this in context of John 2. Jesus insults her intentionally. And says, you know, the Jews are like children and the Gentiles are like dogs. And we don't take the children's food and give it to dogs. And She's not put off in the least. She says, yes, Lord, but the dogs get the crumbs. I'll take a crumb. And Jesus heals her daughter. In other words, her faith was the real deal. And this test or this roadblock, if you will, in front of it, in front of her, proved it. And just like this father here, do you remember the story with the blind man at the gates of Jericho? Jesus is coming through, the crowds are with him, and the blind man hears him. And he says, who is that? Jesus of Nazareth. He's heard the stories. He knows this guy has power to heal him. So he starts yelling out, son of David, have mercy on me. And his friends near him say what? Be quiet. Settle down. Quit yelling. And his response to them is to yell all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets what he's after. The Lord says, what do you want? I want to see. And so he does. And I think to this father here, I think when Jesus says what, what is in itself true, you don't believe until you see signs and wonders. I think he's also, though, putting a test in front of dad. Dad, who do you really believe? Who do you really trust? What's your faith really in? His persistence pays off, of course. Jesus says in verse 50, go your way your son lives. Now the man's response at this point is to believe the word that Jesus spoke to him. That's what the text says. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. That's good. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. He goes home. 
the text says in verse 53, finds out his son is healed. When did it happen? It happened the other day, the same time Jesus said it. And it says again in verse 53, he himself believed and his whole household with him. The question in my mind becomes, why does John state again that the man believed? Verse 50, he, he believed the word Jesus spoke. Verse 53, it says he believed again and his whole household with him. What did he believe the first time? And what did he believe the second time? And is this important? My suspicion here, and it is just that, if you read commentaries, you'll see various opinions on what this means and what the implication is. But I think this is the issue. When he goes to Jesus, he believes that Jesus has power, like medicine, like I might go to the pharmacist, so to speak, to heal his son. That's verse 50. He believed what Jesus said. When he gets back home and sees his sons healed, I think the object of his faith switches from Jesus' power, from the medicine, so to speak, to the pharmacist, to Jesus himself. And you remember, John's after us to believe in Jesus. And in fact, John's gospel is full of these incidents and the use of the term believe and the various incidents that you see related to that. So I think the difference is the object of his faith. Not necessarily the quality of faith. This can get tricky if we try and uh, parse this too finely. If I believe something to be true, uh, how much is, uh, if I believe two plus two is four, but I, I've looked in my wallet and I think I have four dollars and then I'm not sure later, do I believe I have four dollars or not? Sometimes we can go in circles in our minds about do we really believe, do we really trust? You know, Jesus said if you've got a mustard seed, it's enough. It's just that do you have it? Do you have any? Any, the smallest, is enough. We don't have to worry about that. Sometimes people are concerned uh, for themselves or for others. If I die, would I go to heaven? You know, I just say, ask yourself or ask them the simple question. If I die, will I go to heaven and why? And I don't, if the person says Jesus died for my sins, you know what? They're going to heaven. If they understand Christ died for their sins, they believe that, John says, that is salvation. They might say, I've lived a wretched life. I believe, but I don't believe very well. A mustard seed's enough. We just want it to be in the right place. We all believe in something or, or various things. The question is, who is the faith in? What is the belief in? That becomes the key, and I think that's why this passage is important. Let me give you an example. In John 6, which we'll get to later, one of my favorite passages in John. John 6, Jesus, just on the other end of this same lake, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. He has miraculously produced food. There was a couple loaves or a little fish. He feeds miraculously 5,000 people. Just like Moses fed the people in the wilderness manna from heaven, God sent food from heaven. Jesus does the same thing in John 6. Because of the miracle, the crowds follow him. In fact, they follow him back up to the north side of the sea. They follow him, he says, because he fed them. So we could say at least this. These crowds, these 5,000 people that followed Jesus, they believed in Jesus, that is. They believed he could feed them. They believed in his power to provide the next meal. For sure, we know that. 
Jesus, though, throws up a hurdle for this group. And he intentionally says things that are meant to be offensive, just like he did to the Syrophoenician woman, I suspect just like he's doing to our father here. He says something very intentionally designed to be a test of their faith. Who or what do they really believe in? So he says, guys, you know, I fed you that bread and the fish, but I'm telling you, you can't have eternal life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, we're talking about cannibalism, number one, and we're talking about drinking blood, which is anathema to the Jews, related, irrelated to where it came from, human or otherwise. Very offensive. Very offensive. And then John 6, verse 66 it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any more. They left. They went on to find greener pastures and a better Messiah. They left him. Jesus, therefore, said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Pete's faced with something he can't get around. It's not that Jesus fed the multitudes that impresses Peter. Peter knows who he is. See, in this case, the crowds knew what Jesus could do, but the twelve, the disciples, knew who he was. The crowds wanted another meal, and the twelve wanted his fellowship his presence. The crowds believed in his power. His friends, his disciples, believed in his person. Big difference. The crowds left when he offended them. The disciples stayed. They couldn't do otherwise because they believed in him, not just in what he was doing, not in another meal. They believed in him. And I think that's the essence of the story this morning. When the father goes to Jesus, he does have faith. He believes that there's this man from Galilee who can heal his son. Now, at one level, it wouldn't have mattered who this man was, right? If there was any miracle worker, or if this man had been Elijah at a different time or a different place, or someone else who had power to heal, that's not the same as being the Messiah, so the father at least initially believes that Jesus can heal his son. He believes this guy has power to heal. But I think it's when he gets home and sees the healing that Jesus' words become true. He didn't believe until he saw the sign. I don't think this was intentional on his part, but I think it's when his eyes were opened. He went up for help. The help arrives. And when it does, he realizes who Jesus is. And now he goes from believing that someone can heal a son to believing who Jesus is, that Jesus was the Messiah. And in this case, not only him, but his whole household, just like the jailer in Acts 16. You know, initially he got health or healing for his son because he believed Jesus had power. When he sees the power demonstrated, though, he gets eternal life when he believes in Jesus and his whole household with him. You know, it's possible for people and for us at times to do things because we think they're the right things. And there is a certain benefit or payoff to those things. If you believe there's moral right and wrongs, even if you don't believe in Jesus, 
If you go to church on Sunday, you do the right kind of things, you will get a benefit from that. Just as a father would have got the benefit of the healing of his son, even if he had not come to personally trust Jesus as his Savior, there still would have been a benefit. But what a shame to stop there. John, in this story, this, this is a great example. You remember John says, I'm writing these things so you'll believe in Jesus, believing you'll have life in his name. And John frames or he hangs his gospel on seven miracles. This is the second. And the miracles were meant, the power, the demonstration of power or the miraculous was meant to get people's attention so they would believe in Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Dad came, he believed Jesus had power to heal, he leaves and he believes in Jesus. And the signs or the demonstrations of power weren't ends in themselves, they were a means to an end. They would get people's attention so the attention could be focused on the person of Christ himself. It makes me wonder for you and for myself certainly sometimes, when I say I believe in Jesus or I believe in God, uh, what do I really mean? Or at any given point in my life, what am, I, what am I saying when I say, I believe in Jesus? Does that mean that I believe that he can give me the things I want and the things I need? Does it mean I'm believing him for, you know, you, you can go off the list, a bigger house, a newer car, better looks, youthful skin, whatever, you know? I mean, we all have our lists. Am I like dad going to him because I need things? And sometimes that's absolutely legitimate. But when I'm talking about believing in him, does it stop there? I'm not suggesting that it does or that it has to. But sometimes in the dynamics of the way we live, we're trusting God to do certain things that God may not do. What do we say with Peter at the end of that? Lord, you didn't give me what I wanted. Do we say with Peter, but we have no place else to go? Because we don't just believe in your power, Lord. We believe in you. We know who you are. There's no place else to go. We're slaves, as it were. We're in a box canyon. We can't go anyplace else, even if you don't deliver us, even if you don't give us what we want or think we need. We know who you are. It can't be otherwise. If we believe in the Lord primarily for what we can get, and I would suggest that in the United States, this is oftentimes the case. We believe in God for what we can get we're going to be disappointed. You know, he's not the candy man in the sky. He's not the God of blue skies and green lights. Sometimes he blesses us in those ways, and it's great, and we say thank you. But you know, if you talk to people from Voice of the Martyrs, for instance, there's Christians all over the world whom God loves no less than he loves you and I, and they don't have houses to live in. They don't have churches to meet in. They don't have food to eat. They don't have medical attention or care. They are the Romans 8. We're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep for the slaughter. God doesn't love them any less than he loves us. And they don't have less faith or belief in Christ because their life is hard. In the end, none of that is the issue. How well did I live materially on earth or how poorly did I live materially on earth is not the issue. The signs or the answers to prayer we're supposed to be a way of getting our attention off the need to the person of the Lord himself, just as this happens today in our story. You know, 
everybody here has been around long enough, I'm sure, to know life is full of disappointments and things don't go the way you think they will. You know, I'm in my upper 40s, really youthful guy, but I'm approaching, you know, the midlife, midlife. And, you know, I find myself, I review my life and I say to the Lord, Lord, I'm not where I thought I'd be. And life ain't what I was in the bargain for here. You know, you haven't done things I thought you'd do in all kinds of ways. And I'm faced with that dilemma of what do I say? How do I respond? You know, and sometimes I throw my pity party and I wallow around in those feelings for a while. But at the end of the day, what do you say? Midlife crisis or not, you know, what do you say? If you don't get what you thought you had to have. If life comes along and buffets you with things you hoped you'd never see, what do you do? You know, you think the best example of all, certainly, Jesus comes to the earth, God's beloved son, the one in whom he has full delight, and he allows his son to be buffeted and abused and crucified by the vilest of men. That's what he allows for his son. You know, if he'll allow that and we don't, pay for our sins. Jesus was sin bearer on the cross, certainly in a way that none of us, that's not an issue. But he allowed that for his son. And Jesus still says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I trust you. So for us, no matter what happens, still at the end of the day or at the end of the road or in the midst of the turmoil, where are we at in our story? Are we dad saying, Lord, we need you to do something for us. We believe you have power at the beginning of the story. Are we, Dad, at the end of the story with Peter? We know who you are now. Or think about Job. Job 13, 15 is a great verse. Job was a good guy. You know, and God lets him be creamed by Satan. Just creamed. I would would not want to go. I would never criticize Job, as a matter of fact. He was a better man than I'll ever be. And he took more heat probably than I'll ever see. He says in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God were to take my life, he's still my hope. Or listen to these words of Habakkuk out of Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk wrote, Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Both of these are testaments that no matter what happened in life, these folks found their trust, their faith, ultimately in the end was always in God. It didn't matter what happened. They knew who God was. They could not walk away or deny that. You know, believing in God for his power is good, but it's not enough. In the end, God wants us to believe. He wants to put our trust, our faith, as it were, in him. If it's a mustard seed or if it's a basket full, he, he is to be the ultimate object of our faith. So when God doesn't heal your boy or when he doesn't miraculously provide for your next meal, or when he allows life to buffet us so that we can't sense his love, can we still say at the end with Job, he's my hope? Or do we still say with Habakkuk, he's my strength? 
Come what may, he's my strength. I will exult in God, my Savior. I want to close with a story out of first, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 9. This is also a parallel passage in 1 Kings 10. You know, Israel's heyday, the zenith of that empire, was not under King David. It was under his son, King Solomon. Remember, David conquered most of the enemy. Solomon finishes it off. Israel geographically occupies more land under Solomon than it ever would before or after. They have more wealth. In fact, it says under Solomon, silver, silver was nothing. Silver was so common that it was a common metal. It, it had to be at least gold to be considered worthy. There was so much wealth pouring into the nation of Israel under Solomon. And here was this wise, wise king, successful in everything he put his hand to. And you know, commerce and trade, people coming in and going out, stories of this king and his kingdom, Camelot as it were, went around the world. And so a queen in Africa heard stories about this incredible, unbelievable king and his incredible, unbelievable kingdom up in Israel, up in Palestine. So she goes up to check out the stories. She doesn't have a son that needs to be healed, but she wants to see if the stories are true. And so she goes up with her royal retinue. She's got camels and critters laden with all kinds of gold and costly gems, gifts, rarities to bring up to this king. But first she tests him. She asks him all the riddles she knows, and she asks him all the hard questions she knows. And he answers all of them. In fact, the text says that the spirit went out of her. That is, she came up thinking, I'm going to prove this guy false. I'm going to prove he's not what they say he is. And so she whips out all everything in her arsenal to do that. And she's worn out because he's more than adequate for any test she has. And so she says in Second Chronicles 9 at verse 5, She said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe their reports. She believed enough to come check it out. But she didn't believe that it could be true, that all that was said could be true. I did not believe their reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpass the report that I heard. I thought the report was too good to be true. You're better than the report was. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. I love the Queen of Sheba in this sense, just like I love Peter's response to Jesus and the men and the women who wouldn't be put off. She comes up thinking, this guy's a hoax. Can't be true. She finds out it's more than true. It's better than true. And she acknowledges that. She believes. She said, I didn't believe it until I came and I saw. And now I realize you're the real deal. And you know, of course, Solomon is just a picture I mean, he was real. Some will tell you he wasn't. Historically, real guy, real time, the real golden age of Israel. He was real, but he was meant to be a picture of God's greater king, of his coming son. And what the queen of Sheba said about Solomon goes in spades for his heir 
and his Lord, Jesus Christ. And this can be said for any of us. You know, she says, Blessed are these your servants who stand before you and just get to hear your wisdom. King, blessed are those who just get to hang out in your courts and hear your wisdom. How happy are those who just get to see you and hear your wisdom. This is true for us today related to Solomon's heir and Lord Jesus. It's better than that. You know, we come and we say sometimes in hard times, Lord, I believe you. You know, even though you're not doing right by me, even though you haven't given me the things I want, I'll cut you some slack and I'll still believe in you. The truth is, when we see, I mean, we see in a mirror darkly now, when we see face to face, we're going to be blown away. And the times and the ways in which we've believed in Jesus, it's going to seem like small change. We would have thought, why didn't we trust him more fully? Why didn't we believe in him more continually, just like the queen did? That's the bottom line. God wants to take the tests or the trials or the blessings or the answers to prayer, the signs, whatever they are, and he wants to use those as lenses by which we see him more clearly. He's the focus in the end. It's not enough for us to pray to him to give us our needs. In the end, we've got to deal with him. We want to be the dad at the end of the story. He believed in power before. He believes in a person afterwards. And with Peter, Lord, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how crazy it appears. We know who you are. We can't get away from that. We know who you are. We've got no place left to go. Let's pray. Father, I know that all of us experience in life ups and downs, and sometimes we're not sure which end is up. Lord, sometimes we're not sure how to make sense out of our world. Lord, help us to bring to you all the needs, all the worries, all the trials, all the desires, all the hopes and dreams, Lord, and lay them at your feet. Help us to remember that whatever prayers you answer or don't answer in the way in which we hoped, you are as good as and better than your word. And that, Lord, when we see you face to face in eternity, we won't think we should have trusted you less, only more. Lord, take all of our mustard seeds of faith. Help us to place them firmly and finally in you. Help us to hang our hat and our hopes on you. And whether the times are good, Lord, or bad, whether it's dark or light, help us to say with Peter, help us to say with Job or Habakkuk, help us to cry out with the blind man at the gate of Jericho, Lord, because we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God, Lord. And we place our trust in you. Amen.